Blog Talk Radio.
This is Rabbi Dami, a good way and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine uh, brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Saturday, uh, May 14th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to yet another edition of our program. Later on uh, in this uh, episode, uh, we'll, bring, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire reports, uh, dispatches on the continuing military conflict in Ukraine and its impact uh, on the overall international situation. South Africa is experiencing another surge in COVID-19 variant cases amid a crisis within the newly launched vaccination plant. There is a trial underway uh, for a man in Egypt accused of killing a Coptic priest. We'll have details on that. And in the West African state of Togo, eight soldiers were slain in what is said to have been a jihadi attack. In the second hour, uh, we look uh, in detail at the killing of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh uh, by the Israeli police. Uh, Finally, we examine some of the most pressing and burning issues taking place uh, around the world. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude uh, with the orchestra, Bella Bella, classic uh, Pan-African music. Let's listen in. Yeah, yeah, 
Yo, 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 yo,
Kalika Kali Bandeli Miso ya pembe ni eko Salape eko mituna Kepe nini toko tuka Tulapinda yi Mama na miso ya vato Tope tipe promesa Yangana yo eko tukate
banda kite bamaze ukoka kikosalanga boye Isuzumaba otikinga na pandi maladia boyo ego meliga Banaka nenge tokorukana kokwanyoto odeto kutana majili
Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, May 14th, uh, 2022. We are broadcasting live in our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, we just heard the classic uh, Pan-African music from the Bella Bella Orchestra, a collection of tunes uh, recorded uh, between 1969 and 1971. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment, and our lead story deals uh, with the ongoing military conflict in Ukraine uh, between uh, the Russian forces and the Ukrainian forces uh, who are backed uh, by the United States and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and the European Union. Now, during the day, uh, Russian Air Defense Forces uh, downed six Ukrainian drones, uh, including one above uh, Snake Island. That's according to the Russian Defense Ministry spokesman, Major General Igor Konashevkov. Uh, he just said that earlier today. He also added that uh, Russian forces intercepted a Toshka-U tactical missile and three Ukrainian Smirch rockets. During the day, Russian missile forces and artillery hit six, <clears throat> six control posts, 178 personnel and combat vehicle concentration areas, uh, three reinforced bunkers, as well as 28 artillery units at firing positions, including a Smirsh multiple launch rocket system near the settlement of uh, Beryazovka. Uh, that's according to Konoshevkov. Russian airspace forces eliminated 28 Ukrainian company strongholds and two ammunition depots. Uh, during the day, Russian aerospace forces hit 28 Ukrainian armed forces company strongholds and two ammunition depots near settlements of uh, Petroskoye and Zovnivyoko via the precision air-based missiles, he said. Russian aviation also hit 33 personnel and combat vehicles concentration areas during the day. Uh, Konashevkov specified that the airstrikes eliminated up to 90 nationalists and disabled 18 combat vehicles. Uh, since the beginning of the special military operation in Ukraine, Russian armed forces eliminated 864 Ukrainian drones and 3,067 armored vehicles, Russian Defense Ministry spokesman announced. Overall, since the beginning of the special military operation, the Russian forces have eliminated 165 planes, 125 helicopters, 864 drones, 304 missile air defense systems, 3,067 tanks and other armed vehicles, 372 multiple launch rocket systems, 1,514 field artillery guns and mortars, as well as 2,913 special automobile vehicles, he said. Also, uh, from the uh, situation in Eastern Europe, Finland's rejecting the traditional policy of military neutrality would be wrong as there are no threats uh, to the country's security. Now, that's according to Russian President Vladimir Putin. He said this in a telephone conversation with his Finnish counterpart, Soli Nianitto, 
the press service of the Kremlin reported uh, earlier today. The president uh, had a sincere exchange of views over the announced decision by Finland's leadership to apply for NATO membership, the report said. Vladimir Putin stressed that rejecting the traditional policy of military neutrality would be wrong uh, since there are no threats to Finland's security. Such a change in the country's foreign policy course uh, could have negative effects on Russian-Finland relations, which have been built uh, over the course of many years in the spirit of neighborliness and partnership cooperation and have a mutually beneficial nature, the Kremlin said. The conversation was held at the Finnish side initiative, uh, the Kremlin added. The discussion on Finland's NATO membership ramped up in early April. The main members of the alliance welcomed the idea. The majority of the country's parliament members also supported it. And uh, in the Republic of South Africa, South Africa is experiencing a surge of new COVID-19 cases driven by two Omicron subvariants, according uh, to health experts. For about three weeks, the country has seen increasing numbers of new cases and somewhat higher hospitalizations, but not increases in severe cases and deaths, uh, said Professor Marta Nunes, a researcher at Vaccine and Infectious Diseases Analytics at the Chris Hani Baraguanas Hospital in Soweto. We're still very early uh, in this increased period, uh, so I don't want to really call it a wave. Nunes said uh, we are seeing a slight a small increase in hospitalizations and really very few deaths. South Africa's new cases have gone from an average of 300 per day in April to about 8,000 per day uh, this week. Nunn says that the actual number of new cases is probably much higher because of the symptoms are mild, and many who get sick are not getting tested. South Africa's new surge is from two variations of Omicron, the BA4 and the BA5, which appear to be very much like the original strain of Omicron that was first identified in South Africa and Botswana late last year and swept around the globe. The majority of new cases are from these two strains. Uh, they are still Omicron, but just genomically somewhat different, uh, said Nunes. The new versions appears to be able to infect people who have immunity from earlier COVID infections and vaccinations, but they cause generally mild disease, she said. In South Africa, 45% of adults are fully vaccinated, although about 85% of the population is thought to have some immunity based on past exposure to the virus. It looks like the vaccines still protect against severe disease, Noon said. Noon said also that the BA4 and BA5 strains of Omicron have spread to other countries in Southern Africa and a few European countries but it is too early to tell if they will spread across the globe as Omicron did. The increase in COVID cases is coming as South Africa is entering the Southern Hemisphere's colder winter months, and the country is seeing a rise in cases of flu. A COVID testing center in Chiawello, near Soweto, many people come in to be tested for COVID to find out they have the flu. Now, we're in flu season, uh, so it's flu versus COVID, uh, said Magdalene Amatsoso, uh, the site manager at the Chiawelo Vaccination Center. She said people come uh, for testing because they have COVID symptoms. When we do uh, the tests, uh, you find that the majority of them, uh, they are negative when it comes to COVID, but they do have flu symptoms, uh, said uh, Amatsoso. 
So they get flu treatment and then they go home because the majority is related to flu and not COVID. Abuyo Lung Kwame uh, was one of those who came to get tested. I wasn't feeling well when I woke up this morning. I woke up with body pains, a headache, and a blocked nose, feeling dizzy, so I decided to come here, she said. I was terrified about my symptoms because I thought it might be COVID-19, but I told myself that I'd be okay because I have been vaccinated, said uh, Lumquani. She said uh, she was relieved to be diagnosed with the flu and advised to go home with some medications and rest. Also in South Africa, uh, the first factory to produce the COVID-19 vaccines in Africa says it has not received enough orders and may stop production within weeks and what a senior World Health Organization official described Thursday as a failure in efforts to achieve vaccine equity. South Africa's Aspen Pharmacare uh, said that it cannot let its large-scale sterile manufacturing facilities sit idle and will return instead to making anesthetics. At the outset of the COVID pandemic, the company shifted its production and achieved capacity to produce more than 200 million doses annually of the one-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccines. It was widely hailed as a great achievement for Africa, a game changer for the continent, but it has not been followed up with orders. Uh, We have not received any orders from the big multilateral agencies, uh, Stavros Nicolaou, Senior Executive for Strategic Trade Development at Aspen Pharmacare. They told this to the Associated Press uh, just two days ago. COVAX uh, has placed orders for 2.1 billion doses of COVID vaccines, and not a single one has been placed with Aspen or any other African manufacturers, uh, said Nicolaou, referring to the UN-backed effort to distribute coronavirus vaccines to poor countries. It's a cardinal sin to have valuable sterile manufacturing capacity and not put it to use, uh, said Nicolaou. We cannot leave this production capacity idle. We will have to pivot uh, from vaccine manufacturing and return to producing anesthetics unless in the short term we get firm orders for our COVID-19 vaccine. Nicolaou uh, said the lack of orders is not great for Africa's ambition to reduce its dependence on imported vaccines uh, from 99% to 40%. If we fail at this first step, this is bad not just for Aspen, but for all the others aspiring to make vaccines in Africa. At a press briefing on Thursday, Dr. Abdul Salam Gwey, the World Health Organization Emergency's Chief in Africa, said, quote, it may be a failure, but we will learn from it, unquote. He added that if orders were to ramp up, the factory could likely be restarted relatively quick. It's unfortunate that this plant did not receive enough orders, he said, saying that Africa got two-thirds of its vaccines via COVAX and that those vaccines were ordered by Vaccines Alliance Gavi. In a statement, Gavi said Aspen was an active part of J&J's manufacturing network and that the Vaccines Alliance was extremely enthusiastic about buying COVID shots made in Africa. But it said uh, when J&J fulfilled this COVAX order, those shots came from outside the continent. COVAX is still under contract with J&J, and we would be very happy for any doses that we are still expecting to be supplied by Aspen, Gave said, that we have communicated this to J&J. However, again, this is solely a decision that rests with J&J. J&J did not immediately respond to a request uh, for comment. Health officials have repeatedly decried the concentration of vaccine production in rich countries, 
saying the lack of manufacturing capacity in poorer countries was among several factors that put them at the back of the line when COVID-19 vaccines were initially made last year. Some experts said Aspen's imminent closure should change the world's approach to health security. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast. In other news, a court in the Egyptian city of Alexandria began the trial earlier today of a man accused of stabbing to death a Coptic Christian priest, an attack that shocked the world, uh, attacked uh, one of Africa's most populous countries. The case dates to early April when Asnayas Wadid, a 56-year-old priest, was killed at a popular seaside promenade in the Mediterranean city. Nehru uh, Tafik appeared before judges at a packed courtroom earlier today in Alexandria. In the first session of his trial, he denied the accusations. The court's top judge, Wahid Sabri, also questioned witnesses about the attack. One witness said the suspect stabbed the priest because he was a Christian and attempted to attack bystanders when they intervened. When judges asked the witness to recognize the suspect, he walked over to the defendant's cage where the suspect was being held and identified him according to a live streaming on Facebook. Prosecutors demanded uh, the maximum punishment for the suspect, which could be a death sentence if he's convicted. Sectarian violence is not uncommon in Egypt. Islamic extremists have also targeted Christians in recent years, especially following the 2013 military ouster of an elected but diverse Islamist president. In September of 2017, an alleged Islamic State supporter stabbed to death an 82-year-old Christian doctor in Cairo. He was sentenced to death uh, the following year. Egypt's Coptic Church, the the Middle East's largest Christian community, have repeatedly complained of discrimination. Uh, They account for about 10% of Egypt's over 103 million people. At the end of the hours-long court session, judges decided to adjourn the the trial until May 18, uh, when prosecutors and defense lawyers will continue their arguments. And uh, finally, in the West African state of Togo, at least eight soldiers have been killed and 13 other security forces members wounded in an ambush that extremists in northern Togo uh, near the border with Burkina Faso, that's according to the Togolese government. The incident was worrying signs that jihadis who are staging increasing attacks in neighboring countries such as Burkina Faso, uh, Mali, and also uh, Nigeria and Cameroon and Chad are expanding their activities into Togo. Early Wednesday, a group of heavily armed men ambushed an outpost in the Ping Kantandi locality of the Tanjao Prefecture. The Togolese government said in a statement that an armored vehicle was damaged and a jeep burned in the deadly attack. On Thursday, no group had claimed responsibility. Togo's government blamed terrorists for what it called cowardly and barbaric acts. The government said it wanted to reassure Togo's entire population of the determination of the defense and security forces to protect our country and to seek out and disable armed terrorist groups that appeal for the assistance of the civilian population. It was the second such attack in Togo in the last year. An attack in November of 2021 in the same area was repelled by military and security forces and caused no casualties. Groups linked to Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State group have been carrying out increasing attacks in the Sahel region, especially in neighboring Burkina Faso. 
And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service that is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, May 14th, uh, 2022, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. And that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And, of course, uh, we are here uh, once again on uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. To you uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. And we're going to uh, take a break, and uh, we'll be back with more of our program for this week. No one. 
the voice of uh, Helen Smith uh, with the tune entitled Pain in My Heart. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, May 14th, uh, 2022. We are broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit, and the situation in Palestine has been escalating over the last several days. The assassination of Palestinian-American journalist uh, Shireen Abu Akbe, uh, who in fact uh, is a U.S. citizen and uh, is Palestinian-American and was working for the Al Jazeera television network, uh, was killed uh, by Israeli police uh, just several days ago. We're going to bring you a updated uh, examination of the situation uh, in Palestine tomorrow. Uh, May 15th uh, represents the 74th anniversary of the Al-Nakba. Uh, the catastrophe uh, when uh, the state of Israel declared uh, independence in the land of Palestine. And of course, uh, many Palestinians have been forced to leave their homeland. And many more uh, have, of course, been displaced. And many, unfortunately, have been imprisoned and killed. Let's listen to this report uh, from the program, The Stream, on the assassination of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. I am Ahmed Jabuddin, and today on the stream, we mourn the loss of Shireen Abu Akleh, an Al Jazeera journalist who was killed by Israeli forces, and also ask what the international community can actually do to hold Israel accountable. Shireen Abu Akleh, an iconic Palestinian-American journalist, was covering an Israeli army raid on the Janine refugee camp in the occupied West Bank when she was shot in the head. She was killed instantly, despite wearing a vest and helmet that clearly identified her as press. Her legacy is being remembered around the world by many. There is truly no words to describe the pain and grief we feel as we mourn the loss of the brave Palestinian journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. I think we're all shocked. We're still processing the news. We lost a brave voice. We lost a brave journalist who was always there on the ground covering Israeli continuous crimes. She was murdered in cold blood exactly for doing so, for telling the truth, even though she was visibly and clearly marked as press for the Israeli snipers who shot her and targeted her in her head. I... I'm honestly at loss, but all I can say, they wanted to silence Shireen, but we will hold her memory and her legacy. Joining us today to discuss this obscene crime, its implications, and how it's being covered by international media, in Ramallah, Maryam Barghouti, a Palestinian researcher and writer, and in Amman, Jordan, Omar Shakir. He's the Israel and Palestine director at Human Rights Watch. Welcome to the stream. Uh, I want to start, Maryam, by taking a moment and pointing to a tweet that you've been uh, sharing with the world, saying you recall Shireen Nasri's voice echoing in the house as she covered the brutality of a military invasion, tanks and bombs when you were a child, that she was the only journo uh, that covered an arrest of yours by soldiers, and then you also remember her as a mentor. Obviously, uh, Maryam Shireen was you know, a woman, she was a journalist, she was a human, she was a Christian, she was many things. I want to ask you, how are you remembering her and what was your initial reaction to this tragic news? Um, 
I think it's the same current reaction where we're all reacting and trying to grieve, but at the same time, still in disbelief. Did Shirin Abakli's voice really end? Um, our entire childhood echo of her voice, um, especially on Al Jazeera, especially at a time where nobody covered um, the intifada and the raids on Palestinian villages and just the violence, the brute violence. Her, um, uh, Walid Omari, the, the, just, we, we refer to them as the original Jazeera staff. Um, and you'd think she's safe because she's a journalist. She's a senior um, journalist and she's an American citizen and she's a veteran. Uh, and then today we all wake up to the news about shitting, not shitting, giving the news. And I really think that strikes a chord. Yeah, it's clear to so many who knew her and also who respected her. Omar, you heard Maryam recalling um, what, what Shireen meant uh, beyond even a journalist for so many. What, what was your reaction? How are you feeling? Um, the first thing I thought about is... Uh, the, the the fact that Shadeen has been doing this for two decades and then she woke up at 6 or 5.30 this morning and decided that she had to be herself on the front lines to tell the story of this violent Israeli army incursion into Janine. And it's exactly the kind of story the world needs to hear because, you know, in recent days and weeks, we've seen Palestinian after Palestinian, you know, brutally gunned down. And Shadeen had the conviction to wake up, to go there early in the morning. Her last email she sent to colleagues that's been shared on social media speaks to this resolve this determination uh, to tell the truth. And it's such a powerful testament to her legacy and her work. I mean, as Medium put it so poignantly, um, not only for Palestinians that live, uh, you know, in Palestine, but also for Palestinians in refugee camps in Lebanon and Jordan, she was the voice for so many. She told the stories um, at a time when so few were willing to do so bravely and courageously. And I, I, um, uh, it's difficult to put into words, uh, you know, what, you know, what that means and how, um, uh, and, and how much we're, we're worse off without her uh, telling those stories. And uh, on a day like today, there's been so much being said politically by Israel, by the military, by Israel's leaders. Uh, we've seen, for example, on Twitter, the embassy of Israel saying they had a video that shows that it was Palestinian gunfire that actually killed Shireen, of course. Uh, there's also this follow-up tweet saying there was no claim that the gunfire killed Shireen Abu Akleh. So backtracking, and it seems as though we've seen in just 30 minutes ago the U.S. State Department spokesperson saying they trust that Israel has the wherewithal to investigate this and to, to hold those people responsible, accountable. It's exhausting to talk about this without seeing any accountability for year after year, decade after decade. Omar, do you have any faith that this will be uh, prosecuted? There is 
no one can have faith that the Israeli government will investigate its own abuses because we have decades of its practice of whitewashing abuses. It's the same script. I mean, again, Israel has been systematically, uh, routinely using excessive force, gunning down uh, journalists. Let's not forget the Gaza March of Return when we lost Yasser Morteja and other Palestinian journalists. And the UN Commission of Inquiry wrote a report at the time where they wrote that Israeli forces shot at, quote, journalists performing their job knowing who they are. The Israeli government follows the exact same script. Uh, they misdirect. They lie. Uh, they hope this will just get buried away. And the international community mm. all too often is complicit in the same formulation. So it's critical, uh, you know, that, that, that we, we challenge, we push, we speak out. We don't let the same script happen again. Right. And, you know, when we talk about not letting the same script happen again, I, I wonder, Maryam, uh, I'm sure you've seen, for example, Ayman Muhyiddin, who used to work for Al Jazeera, now works for NBC News, tweeting and commenting about this. He wrote on Twitter, the Israeli military and the Israeli government are incapable of carrying out an impartial and fair investigation in the killing of Shirin Abul Akleh. It is imperative that a thorough and independent international-led investigation is conducted. When you see these calls from people who we know for, for, for a long time are aware of kind of why there is no accountability, do you have any hope that things can change? What are the steps that need to be taken? It's almost um, demoralizing to keep asking that question without any change. It is, and I think the issue is that we're asking the wrong questions. Um, I think we need to come to a point where we need to ask ourselves, why are we so uncomfortable with the idea of a liberated Palestine from the river to the sea? And once we come to a conclusion to that, we can either see our inherent racism or we can start mobilizing forward because that's the crux of the issue, right? The entire narrative has revolved around Israeli concerns, Israeli lives, um, and the idea of Palestinian lives, the idea of Shirin Abu Akhle shaking the world um, makes us uncomfortable. And that's where I think we really need to head towards for change, mm. right? The UN has legitimized Israel. The UN is basically a monarchy of six states with veto power mm. that's just recently being challenged. Um, and Israel thrives off of its colonialism of Palestinians. We are literally lab rats for psychosocial warfare, demographic engineering, um, aerospace technology, surveillance technology, and really that's what makes it thrive. It's not just Shireen. Mm. It's really not just Shireen. And I, it's, it, I think Shireen is just a spark in anything to really allow us to see how deep this is. Yeah, and uh, just for those watching at home, if you're joining us on YouTube, we invite you to give your thoughts, your questions, your comments on Shireen's legacy and the larger implications of her death. And we will share those views throughout the show. Ahmad, I want to ask you, um, this tweet from Ambassador Tom Nides, he's saying, very sad to learn the death of American Palestinian journalist. He goes on to use the word encourage, referring to an investigation that he wants to happen. Uh, Ayman Mohideen posted this. I'm referring to it again because, you know, he's saying that the word encourage is too weak. Terminology aside, uh, we've seen some sort of strange new realities, a normalization of the disproportionate power dynamic. Even Abdullah Fayyad, a Boston Globe uh, writer, if you look at this tweet, saying, what a strange revealing thing for an Israeli military spokesman 
to say as a preemptive defense of killing a Palestinian journalist. He's referring, of course, to the part where uh, a military spokesperson today said they're armed with cameras, if you'll permit me to say so. Uh, that referring to, you know, justifying the fact that um, even if she was targeted, that somehow there's a justification for this. When you see how, you know, Western leaders continue to say one thing, but then allow Israel to act with impunity, to not properly investigate, to not hold the people accountable, uh, given your work, I mean, where do you think the conversation needs to go? I think Miriam is absolutely right that, uh, you know, the issue with Shireen's killing is not simply a case of bad apples or, you know, uh, an abuse that's committed. We're talking about a structural violence. We're talking about an underlying daily reality where everyday Palestinians face either the cold institutional violence of a system dedicated to the domination of one people over another or the hot violence, you know, of, 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 of bloodshed of, of Palestinians gunned down, uh, which happens on a on a routine daily basis and I think too long the international community tries to focus on you know one you know even when they want to let's say in the, the example uh, where, where there is no absolutely no uh, argument otherwise mm. you know it's it's these bland calls about investigations we saw what four months ago uh, when, when a Palestinian uh, uh, American man Omar Assad a similar script for but four months ago is you know outrage calls for investigation and quickly the story fades into the background and uh, you know meanwhile the violence against Palestinians in repression continues on a daily basis so I think we need to recognize reality for what it is we need to listen to Palestinian voices like those of, of Medium and those on the ground yeah. and I think we need to fundamentally shift the paradigm and we need to hold uh, take action ultimately to end complicity with these serious right. crimes and to hold the perpetrators accountable. And when we talk about shifting the paradigm, obviously it's imperative that we do that in the mainstream media, online, in every corner that this discussion is being had. I want to share with you something Sharif Mansour from the Committee to Protect Journalists had to say about this. Take a listen. We at the Committee to Protect Journalists are calling for an immediate and transparent investigation by both Israeli and Palestinian authorities for the horrific killing of Al Jazeera correspondent Shireen Abu Aql. We know that those investigations have in the past resulted in nothing. And this is why we also think today is a reminder for the UN inquiry into the actions of both parties against journalists, including the killing of at least 18 journalists to our account since 1992. You know, Omar, there have been countless headlines. If you look at this one from the New York Times, Shireen Abu Akhle, trailblazing Palestinian journalist, dies at 51. You know, it's, it's become strange, you know, to even discuss sort of the way in which uh, Israel's erased from being an aggressor, from being accountable for murdering children, for bombing hospitals, schools. Uh, we cover this on this network. Uh, it's seldom as covered on other networks. Uh, I, I wonder what you think will actually bring about that shift in paradigm that you say is so badly needed uh, in the mainstream media. Do you see a, a, any signs of hope? Look, I do think there's been a shift, and I think that shift is the, is the product of 
Palestinian organizing and advocacy, uh, you know, over many, many years. And I think that's resulting in increasing consciousness in the international community. But it's not enough. It's not going far enough. It's still, we still see a repetition of the same sorts of, um, you know, misframings, misanalysis, misinformation consistently thrown around. So I think it's important that, you know, as, as Medium put it, that we continue to amplify and, and uh, Palestinian voices. We, you know, we need to listen to those voices and perspectives, even when, when it's hard and when it challenges some of our foundational, you know, thinking. Um, so I do think there's been a shift, but obviously that shift wasn't enough to, to stop the bullet that killed Shanine. It wasn't strong enough to uh, hold Israel accountable, uh, you know, for its, its, its systematic mm. daily violence, repression, and apartheid against Palestinians. So we need to keep doing more of it, and, and I hope that days ahead we'll see more of that. And, you know, Maryam, when you see comments, whether from Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who called for a moment of silence, you know, today in Washington, D.C., or even from Andre Carson uh, of Indiana saying, I joined countless others in mourning the death of Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, who was killed by Israel's military while on assignment, the U.S. must hold the Israeli government accountable for this and all other acts of unjust violence it commits. When you see uh, more and more people speaking out, whether in a tweet or what have you, do you, do you feel there is a shift, as we heard Omar outline? Um, this is where I'm going to have to differentiate. I feel the shift, but unfortunately for Shireen and unfortunately for all of us here and trying to move forward, it means nothing mm -hmm. if it's not followed by action. I'm really happy we're reaching this awareness, but it really needs to move forward now. Um, accountability means stop arming Israel. Invest these American tax dollars in building a health care system in the U.S. Invest them in ending racism so you don't, so you don't elect a president that wants to build a wall um, to ban immigrants and put children in cages. Maybe kind of shift it there. So we really need to move forward in that. As mm. wonderful as it is, this diplomatic language, mm. it really means nothing on the ground. Right. And, you know, speaking of uh, a lot of people on YouTube, I should say, are saying this is not the first time Israel killed Palestinian journalists. This is Adventure Khan saying international organizations still keep silent. The, you know, the Western media is also silent. And, you know, that's part of why we want to talk about this and talk about Shireen uh, as a human. You say it's not enough, uh, Maryam. And I know that you're not alone in feeling that way. If you look at this tweet from Dalia Hadouka, she's a friend of, um, of Shireen's. She says, my sweet girl, I can't believe this. What justice is there in this world? There's none as long as you live under Israel's military rule. They will say they will investigate. What does it matter? She's gone. Uh, not to get too existential, uh, obviously a, a powerful rhetorical question there, Omar, but does it matter? Uh, you know, let's, let's go with that. Does it matter if there will be an independent investigation? Does it matter uh, if Western leaders will start to pressure Israel? It matters if it can actually change the reality on the ground. I think Medium's absolutely right to point to the fact that, well, there has been some shift in the framework and the paradigm, which is critical and important, until it actually results in changing the reality uh, on the ground for Palestinians. It's not enough. Uh, but our, our goal here is to, you know, prevent, uh, to, to do what we can to end 
complicity in Israel's crimes prevents, uh, you know, down the road more of this from happening. And that's only going to come with real action. I think Medium identified some of the things that need to stop, you know, and I think it starts with forms of complicity, whether it be, you know, business operations, arms sales, all these things that further entrench uh, the daily systematic violations that take place. I think we too often, when it comes to mm-hmm. Israel-Palestine, exceptionalize, you know, what's necessary. But the bottom line is we need to hold, you know, Israel to the same standards of other countries that commit crimes against humanity, war crimes, and other abuses. And the disconnect between the rhetoric, the analysis, the framework that we see applied to the Ukraine, to China's treatment of the Uyghurs, and to the way that Palestinians are treated by Israel, that needs to end. And, uh, you know, just for people who are not aware of the context, I want to share this with our audience. Also put this to you, Maryam. Between 2020 and 2022, in just two years, six Palestinian journalists were killed in the occupied West Bank and Gaza. That's according to the Palestinian Journalist Syndicate. More than half have been killed in the last 20 years of the 86 Palestinian journalists that have been killed since the 1967 war. The syndicate also documents, more importantly, uh, Maryam, between 500 and 700 attacks a year by Israel on journalists. And as someone who's reported on the ground uh, for both Al Jazeera and for Vice, in both cases attacked and and seemingly targeted, but certainly Al Jazeera has a certain cachet, uh, for better or worse, and a certain targeting. Uh, What can you share with us about your experience there on the ground and what you think um, can actually pressure Israel to be uh, to be more mindful that journalists must be protected? Um, well, for starters, all mainstream media need to stop hiring senior correspondents as Israelis while not hiring Palestinian correspondents under the pretext that we can't be objective. Um, Israel needs to be held accountable for every crime it held against every journalist, but more importantly, for the reason why they killed them, and that is that they are Palestinian. It is not a disrespect for press. It is a disrespect and a disvalue of human life that is Palestinian. When you see um, correspondents from CNN, from the New York Times, or from BBC, and they're international, they automatically do have more protection. But these, what happens today with Shireen, shows you how microaggressions will escalate. So eventually Israel will be even more emboldened and even the international senior correspondents won't be safe. Just like Givara Buderi last year um, in Sheikh Jarrah was being attacked brutally by Israeli border police, begging and yelling, saying, don't touch me, I'm pressed. Um, And we didn't pay enough attention and now we're getting killed. So we also really need to pay attention to that. As media news agency, there's... There, there is a duty. You have that duty to uphold. Uh, you know, when you talk about duties, there are also human rights organizations, including B'Tselem, on the ground uh, that has been debunking a lot of the propaganda that Israel has been publishing today, including the suggestion that it was Palestinian gunfire that killed Shireen. Take a look at uh, this comment that was sent to us from the executive director of B'Tselem. As always, Israel tried initially to shift the blame. The Prime Minister, the Foreign Minister, the Minister of Defense, and the IDF spokesperson all propagated the narrative based on a short video clip suggesting that it was Palestinian gunfire that killed the journalist. However, a Bethlehem field researcher today, this morning in Jenin, easily refuted this false narrative. It was very clear to demonstrate 
that there is no way that the footage that the Israeli army was propagating is footage of gunfire that could have hit the journalists. It seems, Omar, even with the work of B'Tselem and Human Rights Watch and Amnesty and many other human rights organizations, especially the Palestinian-led ones, that we are still not having the paradigm shift uh, and, and the accountability, more importantly. Uh, are you encouraged at all by this sort of work and these partnerships? I think there's a unique moment where uh, there is a clear um, uh, shared sense of the reality on the ground that that spans from Palestinian and Palestinian human rights groups have been doing this, of course, for decades. Israeli international groups, there's a, there's a consensus across the human rights movement that Israeli authorities are committing crimes against humanity, apartheid and persecution against millions of Palestinians. There's a sense that there is a single government policy uh, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea that's aimed at preserving the, the domination uh, of one people at the expense of another. Uh, uh, and there's increasing efforts across uh, civil society organizations, uh, you know, to push for real consequences to be imp imposed on the Israeli government. And I think that's a really unique moment that we're in. Mm. Again, it's not yet translated into shifts in the policies of uh, governments around the world. And that's a failure of the human rights movement. I think we need to acknowledge and accept that reality that while we may have a uh, shared uh, assessment, uh, you know, that the international community came too late to that. Palestinians have been describing their lived reality for years and decades, and not enough of us listened. So mm -hmm. it's important it's happening, but for it to actually matter, we need to actually translate that paradigm shift into changes on the ground. And we're frankly not there yet, and we're not close. And, you know, when we, when we look at certain leaders like uh, President Biden, when he said just last week at the White House Correspondents Association dinner, we honor journalists killed, missing, imprisoned, detained, and tortured, covering war, exposing corruption, and holding leaders accountable. I just, you know, I wonder, there's so much rhetoric around uh, how much we protect and honor journalists, and then very little action when, um, you know, they're a certain type of journalist or when geopolitics goes against that um, truth. So uh, thank you so much for being with us, both Omar uh, and uh, Maryam. We're going to have to end the conversation there. Welcome back. And that was a report uh, from the stream on uh, the assassination of Shireen Abu Akhle, uh by the Israeli police uh, just this last past uh, week. Uh, we're going to hear another report from Inside Story on uh, Palestine uh, in relationship to uh, the killing of Shireen Abu Akhle, uh, who was a Palestinian-American journalist who had served as a 
correspondent uh, for the Al Jazeera television and media uh, worldwide uh, network. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, May 15th is Al Akbar Day, uh, the 74th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence uh, by the Israeli state within uh, the Palestinian homeland. And of course, uh, the Palestinians have been suffering uh, since uh, and even before uh, May 15th of 1948. And of course, uh, the Al Nakba Day is being commemorated and will be commemorated uh, throughout uh, the international community, not only in Palestine, but also. Uh, in Europe, as well as the United States and other geopolitical regions. Let's listen to uh, another extended report on uh, the assassination of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akhle. Is Israel a rogue state if army has killed Al Jazeera's journalist Shireen Abu Akhle in cold blood? And this is not the first time. Will Israel get away with its crimes and who can hold it to account? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Hashim Ahalbarra. Shirin Abu Akhla was a household name across the Middle East. The veteran Al Jazeera journalist earned widespread praise for more than two decades of reporting on Israel's occupation of Palestinian territory, telling stories of war atrocities and Palestinian resistance. She was shot in the head as she covered Israel's latest raid on the Jenin refugee camp in the occupied West Bank. Al Jazeera condemned the killing as a blatant murder intended to prevent journalists from conducting their duty. Qatar's emir called on those who assassinated Shireen to be brought to justice. Jamal al-Shayal takes a look at what we know about the killing of Shireen. Don't shoot the messenger, unless you're an Israeli soldier. In that case, you're seemingly okay with shooting a reporter who's clearly identifiable as a journalist and poses no threat. Shireen Abu Akleh is the latest reporter to be killed by the Israeli military, which has a long history of targeting journalists and news outlets, particularly Al Jazeera. Shireen, a veteran reporter who spent her life covering events in occupied Palestine, was among a group of journalists documenting what was happening in Jenin early on Wednesday. According to eyewitnesses and video footage, she was wearing a safety vest and helmet, both of which clearly identified her as a member of the press. Despite this, or maybe because of it, Shireen was shot and killed. We were going to film the Israeli army operation, and suddenly they shot us without asking us to leave or stop filming. The first bullet hit me, and the second bullet hit Shireen. They killed her in cold blood because they are killers and specialize in killing only Palestinian people. We had no resistance, and there was no Palestinian resistance at all at the scene. Journalist Ali Samoudi was also shot and injured in the attack. There was no exchange of fire. So there is no possibility whatsoever that a Palestinian has shot Shireen Abu Akhleh. The Israeli army always uses these excuses to cover up the crimes they are committing against Palestinians, including Palestinian journalists. 
According to rights groups, Israel has killed 50 journalists since 2000 and injured more than 144 in the past four years alone. This is also not the first time Israel has intentionally targeted Al Jazeera. Last year, the network's office in Gaza was bombed to rubble. While journalist Javar al-Bideri was assaulted by Israeli forces whilst reporting on Israel's ethnic cleansing of Arab residents in occupied East Jerusalem's Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood. Israeli authorities say they've launched an investigation, but human rights groups say they have little faith in Israeli justice, particularly with renowned organizations like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International accusing Israel of implementing a system of apartheid. Uh, there are um, human rights organizations, for example, like Beit Salem, an Israeli human rights organization, uh, that decided a long time ago that they are no longer going to even interact with the complaint system uh, within the Israeli army uh, because it is not serious. Uh, it doesn't find Israeli soldiers guilty. Qatar's foreign ministry, whose country hosts the Al Jazeera network, issued a statement. The Israeli occupation killed Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akla by shooting her in the face while wearing the press vest and a helmet. She was covering their attack in Janine refugee camp. This state-sponsored Israeli terrorism must stop and unconditional support to Israel must end. The European Union and other members of the international community have also condemned the killing. But all these condemnations have fallen short of including any sanctioning or punishment for a crime that threatens the essence of any free society, a free press. Shireen was killed trying to inform the world of what was happening in her country. The world now knows that in occupied Palestine, no one is safe from Israel's bullets, not even journalists. Jamal al-Shayyal. Al Jazeera. The killing of Shirin Abu Akhla triggered international condemnation. The UN Special Envoy for the Middle East peace process demanded an immediate and thorough investigation. The US Ambassador to Israel also tweeted a call for a thorough probe into the circumstances of her death. Israel has proposed a joint inquiry. But the Palestinian foreign minister said it does not trust investigations by an occupying state, adding they do not lead to a place other than acquitting criminals and murderers. Last month, international and Palestinian media groups submitted a formal complaint to the International Criminal Court accusing Israel of war crimes against journalists. The Committee to Protect Journalists said 24 journalists have been killed since 2002. That figure does not include Shirin Abu Akhli. Other press freedom advocates have reported higher numbers. Israel systematically targets journalists from media outlets, including Al Jazeera. Several on board a humanitarian flotilla heading to Gaza were detained in 2010. A year ago this week, an Israeli airstrike destroyed the offices of Al Jazeera and the Associated Press in Gaza. And a month later, Israeli soldiers arrested Al Jazeera journalist Givara Budiri as she covered protests in the occupied East Jerusalem. Let's bring in our guest in West Jerusalem. Hagai Led is executive director 
of the Israeli Information Center for Human Rights in the Occupied Territories in Doha, Aisha El-Basri, researcher at the Arab Center for Research and Policy Studies. In Cambridge, Rami Khouri, professor of journalism at American University of Beirut and senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. Welcome to the program. Hagai, how would you characterize the position of the Israeli government so far? Because when you listen to Benny Gantz, the defense minister, he seems to be implying that this could have the fire that targeted Shirin Abu Akhla could have come from the Israeli side. You have the prime minister, Naftali Bennett, saying at the same time, no, we should blame the Palestinian fighters for this. I think they've pivoted very quickly from their initial efforts to deflect by suggesting uh, in numerous ways, from the prime minister down, uh, the idea of spokesperson, other government ministers, the foreign minister, who is also the alternative prime minister, all very quickly suggesting, uh, based on a short video clip, that it was Palestinian gunfire uh, that killed uh, Shirin Abakla and injured uh, her colleague. Uh, and then, once that was thoroughly debunked within a few hours, uh, also thanks to the work of, of Bethlehem itself, uh, they shifted to what is typical uh, their routine, which is offering an investigation. Uh, but experience very clearly demonstrates that in the cases of such killings of Palestinians, the announcement of Israel's desire or intention to investigate does not lead to accountability. It's just the beginning of the beginning of the state's organized whitewash. Mm-hmm. Aisha, the, 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 the Israeli government is calling for a joint investigation. The Palestinian Authority says it does not trust a joint investigation. Where does this leave the case of Shirin Abu Akhle? Well, uh, let us start with this question. Do we really need an investigation? An investigation is called for when there is doubt. And uh, from what we saw, from what we heard, uh, the, uh, the media professionals, the Palestinians who were uh, there just next to Shirin Abu Akhle, and who were also victims of the same attack, they saw the perpetrators. They are eyewitnesses. And I think they're, uh, they're uh, witnessing this, uh, this uh, targeting of, of Shirin and, and, and her colleagues is quite enough to establish this crime. I, I, I agree with uh, what just has been said. Uh, the, the investigation is an old trick. It's a strategy to uh, muddy the waters, to uh, obfuscate uh, by time until the, the, uh, the outrage and, and the tension is, is diffused. And that is going to be another case uh, or story killed. So I, I, uh, I think that uh, there's enough evidence the eyewitnesses uh, are very credible, unless one thinks that Arab Palestinians are not trustworthy to be witnesses of, of, of an attack that they saw the, the perpetrators. Mm-hmm. And that would be another discrimination. Rami, the, uh, the, 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 the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, said that the uh, authority is going to take the case to the ICC, International Criminal Court. Do you see the case taking that path any any, any, any time soon? Oh, it's likely that the ICC will be asked to open an investigation, a preliminary investigation. Reporters Without Borders and Amnesty International have already <clears throat> um, tried to use the International Criminal Court to investigate the Israeli uh, destruction of an entire apartment block of offices last year in Gaza that had the uh, Associated Press and Jazeera and other journalists. So 
the likelihood of any serious action by the ICC is slim, but the Palestinians are, are now using every opportunity available to them uh, non-violently and legally um, to mobilize public opinion, to uh, lean on the rule of law, to hold uh, Zionism and Israel accountable uh, for their actions. Um, and I think we will see more calls of this kind, mm -hmm. um, but probably um, very little independent investigation is likely to happen. But I don't think much investigation is needed. If you looked at the Washington Post story this morning by mm -hmm. three terrific reporters on the ground who went there and spent hours investigating every angle, every Israeli claim, every Palestinian claim, and they, they, they said the evidence is pretty clear. Haggai, you spoke of what happened when the Israeli government posted the video showing uh, Palestinian fighters trying to create its own narrative by suggesting that these could be the people who have killed Shirin al-Khori, except that when you stepped in as B'Tselem and you said this is absolutely no way that this could have come from those areas. Now, when you look at that position by the Israeli government right after the beginning of the international outcry against the assassination of Shirin Abu Akhla. Do you see the potential for an independent, impartial investigation by the Israeli government that would provide the crucial elements of exactly what happened and the circumstances of the killing of Shirin Abu Akhla? Um, we have an experience, of, unfortunately, of, of many years uh, of work, of the ability to analyze and really understand what the Israeli investigation system is really about. It's not meant to establish accountability. It is meant to protect the perpetrators while pushing against uh, you know, the jurisdiction of international justice, uh, while suggesting that there is domestic recourse, while in fact there isn't. So there's a reason why Israel invests all these efforts in the public relations of what looks like an investigation, uh, so that there won't be international jurisdiction, while at the same time succeeding in providing itself with blanket impunity. And I think from Israel's perspective, looking back at the record from numerous cases of killings of Palestinians in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem, uh, in major military operations against Gaza, the uses of snipers against Palestinian demonstrators during the Great March of Return, and so many other uh, examples, eventually Israel managed to get away with it, mm -hmm. uh, both to maintain this reality of committing war crimes uh, and enjoying impunity, and at the same time somehow preserving its standing uh, in the world uh, as, you know, a, a democratic nation, member of the Western Club of Countries, uh, and so on, with no consequences. And that's really what is essential, what must change if we are to eventually uh, get closer to some sort of justice here. Aisha, when you see the string of international condemnation and statements coming out right after the assassination of Shirin Abu Akhla, the EU urging an independent investigation, the United Nations Human Rights Chief Michel Bachelet saying that it's about time for uh, an end to impunity in Israel. But do you see realistically a chance for a change of behavior in Israel as far as the atrocities committed against journalists? All these statements we've been hearing since yesterday, uh, they've been actually playing at the hands of Israel because they've been also playing the same game of casting doubt about the testimony of the uh, media professional Palestinians who were there and who saw the perpetrators. 
Um, I think what uh, what should be uh, looked at right now is the uh, the big picture. Uh, why Shireen was killed, uh, was targeted. Well, first of all, because she was journalist and she was chasing uh, the stories about the crime and exposing them, but also because she was an Arab-Palestinian uh, who was, uh, like uh, most of the Palestinians targeted, the right to exist is denied by Israel. And she was uh, chasing the story of apartheid Israel. I think the big picture right now is what happened uh, in, in that camp, why she was there. She was there because Palestinians in a Janine camp, they're living under, under the apartheid Israel. And that is the story. Unless the uh, international, so-called international community, deals with this issue, I don't think there would be change. Plus, the, uh, the, the big, uh, I would say, step uh, that has been taken by the UN was actually the report by the rapporteur, special rapporteur Michael Link on, on 22nd March uh, 2022, who exposed for the first time facts that have been documented by Palestinians, by the Salim uh, Organization, by Human Rights uh, Watch and, and Amnesty International. So he confirmed that there is an apartheid in, in a system in Israel um, and that that has to be dismantled. Mm -hmm. Unless the international community deals with this issue, I don't think there would be any change. Rami, there have been many many reports over the last few years by independent media organizations in, in the occupied territories talking and documenting the cases of abuse, um, uh, killing of journalists for many years uh, in those areas. We haven't seen an international outcry. Could the case of Shirin Abu Akri be the moment that would bring together a new awareness about the need to put an end to targeting of journalists? I doubt uh, it'll go that far, but what it will do is add uh, one more um, element in a growing crescendo of international concern, mobilization, action, uh, political pressure, public statements, media coverage, organizing in labor groups and, and universities all over the world, that very, very slow trend in the last uh, 10, 15 years, and especially in the last year, since last May, June, in, in Jerusalem and other places around Palestine, we've seen a significant but slow trend uh, in which governments issue statements, uh, but they don't take action. And now we're seeing more and more action. BDS is the main way that this is happening, but there's also law cases in the United States, parliamentary decisions in Europe, labor union, banks, supermarkets in Europe places, all saying we will not be complicit in Israel's apartheid colonial system in the occupied Palestinian territory and treatment of Palestinians. Shireen's assassination will add one more uh, push to this, mm -hmm. uh, and it will bring journalists more actively into this, especially since she was a dual citizen, American uh, and Palestinian. But the most critical point, mm -hmm. I think, to, to grasp is how this is being framed by Palestinians as part of a hundred-year struggle, that this has been going on uh, since the 1920s. And Janine was a center of Palestinian resistance to early Zionism in the 1930s mm -hmm. uh, and has been ever since, uh, as has Gaza. 
And the Israelis were sending their army, one of the strongest armies in the world, into this warren of uh, little streets in, in the refugee camp mm. with massive firepower, intelligence, satellite, everything you can think of, uh, and they still can't uh, quell it. They cannot mm -hmm. stop the resistance in Jenin, and that's why they were there, and that's why Shireen was there, and that's why she was shot. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is a bigger story, and the context has to be appreciated as an ongoing uh, a resistance war by Palestinians, mostly peaceful, against a colonial Zionist Israeli um, move since the 19-teens, 1915-1917. The balance is still in Israel's favor politically, globally, but it is slowly, slowly moving towards okay. a more even-handed position. This is important. Haggai, I would like your view about, about again, the backdrop of what we've been talking about. Now, B'Tselem, the organization that you work for, has been doing an extraordinary work over the last few years in documenting human rights violations in the Israeli-occupied territories. Now, the Israeli government has been really angered by some of your reports to the point where it has been trying to produce new reports, parallel reports to discredit your narrative. At the same time, to give you an, uh, an example, 2019, the United Nations Human Rights Council commissioned its report about it found that there are indications on the ground that Israeli snipers have been targeting Palestinian journalists who are trying to cover what was happening on the ground. The Israeli government rejected the findings, saying that these are kangaroo court reports. The, the way the Israeli government has been dealing with your reports or with the reports from the international community, what kind of message uh, are you sending to the people? Yes, maybe if you allow me just before I address that, mm -hmm. I wanted to add one more thing about the, how critical the impunity is for Israel's oppression of, of Palestinians. Uh, and what I want to spell out is, is, is the following. It's impossible to conduct such an oppressive apartheid regime against an entire people over decades without the usage of organized state violence all the time to take their land, uh, to control them, to oppress them. Um, so the violence is an essential aspect of Israel's ability to do this to, to the Palestinian people. But it has to come hand in hand with the impunity because if Israel doesn't grant itself the impunity, then it doesn't have the ability to apply this kind of violence and successfully control the Palestinians. Uh, so this is strategic. It's a cornerstone mm -hmm. of Israel's regime. It has to be understood as a, as a feature of this, uh, of this system. Now, with regard to the way the government addresses our reports and the reports of you know, other human rights organizations, of Palestinian colleagues, international organizations, and so on, it's very typical a response that doesn't address the substance because they really can't argue with, with the facts and with the analysis. Instead of that, they opt to try and shoot the messenger, uh, try and uh, you know, present us as traitors, or in the case of Palestinian colleagues, typically the government would try to present them as terrorists. And with regard to international uh, entities, mm -hmm. uh, usually the government will use accusations of anti-Semitism. Okay. Uh, the ICC in itself was blamed by the former prime minister as both supportive of terrorism and anti-Semitism. Aisha, briefly, if you don't mind, could it be this prevailing sentiment, in, particularly in the West, that you know? You know what? Because this, this is a part of the world where you have dictators, where you have instability and so on and so forth and violence and radical groups. You know what? 
who cares about the fate of the journalists when they die? Because you don't get the same response when it comes to a similar case where a Western journalist is targeted, is targeted or is killed? Well, uh, I think the, the main reason is, is because is, uh, Israel is actually the, the product, the byproduct of uh, Western colonial uh, settlers. And uh, this is their baby, basically. So this is uh, whatever Israel is doing is the result of the, uh, their creation uh, which Joanna unfortunately uh, contributed to uh, through the, the partition uh, resolution and uh, all over the, 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 the action and, and lack of action it, it, it undertook. So that's uh, that's basically the the, uh, the reason why they they, uh, they don't want to to hold uh, uh, Israel to account. But the UN has a major role to play. Uh, I would say first that uh, it has to follow up on the uh, Michael Link report on the uh, apartheid Israel mm-hmm. and the need for a dismantling it. Second, there's a, a UN Security, a Security Council resolution 2334 that was adopted in 2016, which calls on ending the occupation and also ending the illegal settlements that also have to, to, to uh, need a follow-up by the, the Palestine, the state of Palestine. Mm-hmm. There is also uh, the ICC. The ICC, we haven't heard Karim Khan. Huh? He was very quick uh, to, uh, to, to take the first uh, uh, plane to, uh, to Ukraine and, and uh, start an investigation. And we haven't heard from him on when it comes to Palestine. It's Thank been you. one year since. So uh, these are the three uh, major. Uh, uh, decision makers that need to do uh, the right thing in order to dismantle the apartheid. Thank you very much indeed. This is exactly what Shirin Abu Akhla said when she was last interviewed. I first went into Jenin uh, refugee camp 20 years ago. Before that, I had to overcome my fear. I chose to become a journalist because I wanted to be close to people. Uh, Aisha al-Basri, Rami al-Khuri, Hagai al I really appreciate your insight. Thank you. And thank you too for watching. You can see the program again anytime by visiting our website, aljazeera.com, for further discussion. Go to our Facebook page, that's facebook.com forward slash AJ Insight Story. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. Our handle is at AJ Insight Story. From me, Hashem Ahlbara, and the entire team here in Doha. Bye for now. Welcome back. And uh, that was our inside story uh, dealing uh, with the Israeli uh, military assassination of Shireen Abu Akhle, uh just this last past week uh, in Jadineen, a refugee camp in occupied uh, Palestine. And if you want to uh, stay abreast of the situation in Palestine, just log on to the Pan-African Newswire at panafricannews.blogspot.com, and uh, we are very much uh, engaged uh, in the situation in occupied uh, Palestine and, of course, the United States propping up of this illegal uh, racist Zionist regime. Right now, uh, we're going to take a break. Uh, We'll be back with our concluding segment uh, for uh, this week's Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. I'd rather be lonely I'd rather be blue 
Sri Lankan president promises changes as the country plunges further into chaos. U.S. inflation continues to stay at a 40-year high, and U.S. COVID death has officially passed one million mark. Hello, you are listening to World Today, a news program from a different perspective. I'm Ding Hai in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on our previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. Our top story. U.S. President Joe Biden is hosting Southeast Asian leaders in Washington D.C. Issues including the post-COVID-19 economic revival, climate change, and the political situation in Myanmar will be on the table at the two-day meeting starting on Thursday. The White House says the commitment will demonstrate the enduring commitment of the United States towards ASEAN. The Philippines and Myanmar, though. Will not be represented at this meeting. So joining us now on the line is Dr. Li Peimei, assistant professor of political science with the International Islamic University, Malaysia. Good evening. Hello. A very good evening to you. Thank you very much for joining our show. So, why do you think Mr. Biden is hosting this particular meeting? At a time when the the ongoing war in Ukraine seems to be Washington's top, you know, foreign policy priority. Um, I think well, the Ukraine war might be the pressing issue that the Biden administration actually needs to deal with. But personally, I think Washington's long term interest、mm-hmm. is actually to maintain a free and open Indo Pacific. Hence, I think the U.S. needs to pursue deeper engagement with Southeast Asia, and in fact,、uh, I think this is the best time to engage Southeast Asia countries because with the Ukraine war, the U.S. can easily make a comparison between what is happening in Ukraine with what could potentially happen in the Southeast Asia country、uh, with a growing China. Hmm. So I guess there is one question because you are. Uh, exactly situated in a country that belongs to ASEAN in Malaysia. So, from ASEAN's perspective,、uh, is there a, a a sort of realistic need for the United、mm-hmm. States to increase or enlarge its presence in the region in Southeast Asia? Yeah, from Southeast Asia perspective,、um, I think it depends on what kind of presence we're talking about. Mm. Uh, if it's more about military presence, I, I don't think it is helpful at all because it will only escalate the tensions in the region.、Um, especially if now a sensitive time, right, with the war happening in Ukraine, if the United States actually decided to increase its military presence in Southeast Asia,、um, I think it might send a wrong warning to the a、uh, wrong signal to the people in Southeast Asia. But If today we're talking about economic crisis,、mm-hmm. um, I believe many,、um, I mean, ASEAN members will be very happy and they will welcome the U.S. firms to actually invest in Southeast Asia.、Mm-hmm. But in terms of maintaining peace and security,、uh, I don't think ASEAN will、uh, be happy to have the external party to play a role.、Mm, yeah, indeed, there should be some sort of distinction to be. You know, draw between security affairs and economic affairs. So Biden's Indo-Pacific、mm-hmm. strategy, which we know was released earlier this year, back in February, says 
Washington will explore more opportunities for the Quad, namely India, United States, Australia, Japan, to work with ASEAN nations. Do you think this particular idea will resonate with ASEAN? I think it will definitely be in the interest of the United States to gain support from as many countries as possible to maintain its position as a global leader. Therefore, by proposing cooperation between Quad and ASEAN could help to draw ASEAN closer to the United States. Mm. Uh, however, I'm actually quite skeptical that ASEAN members would be willing to work with Quad, especially if it is to contain China. As we know, the main goal of Quad actually now is to contain the rise of China. Um, this is because if we look at China's growth, ASEAN has actually benefited from it. And looking at how interdependent ASEAN economies and Chinese economies are, um, I think um, ASEAN would not uh, want to work closely with Quad to contain China. Uh, they don't want to be seen as part of the forces that try to contain China. But of course, if we're talking about cooperation in non-security matters like uh, COVID-19, uh, I believe that's possible. Okay. So I guess that's the observation shared by many other observers uh, over there in Southeast Asian countries. Now, if yeah, like you said, Dr. Lee, like ASEAN countries look forward to more economic engagement on uh, on the part of the United States in this region. So here's one specific issue we can talk about. Basically, during the summit, uh, the Washington or President Biden himself. Um, is largely expected to discuss this idea regarding Indo-Pacific economic framework uh, with ASEAN leaders. We know this uh, this particular framework was uh, unveiled by Biden last year, uh, and some mm-hmm. of the uh, content within this framework, uh, at least uh, at this point, does not seem to be mm-hmm. very clear. But do you think this mm-hmm. is going to impress ASEAN if President Biden talk about this during this meeting? Yeah, I think in, indeed you have highlighted how now not many details have actually been revealed about this uh, new economic framework that's led by the United States. But one thing we can be sure of, it's, only, it's not going to be inclusive. It's only to include like-minded partners. Um, and because there aren't many details that have been revealed about this uh, Indo-Pacific economic framework, we can't be sure how impressive this framework will be and what this framework can offer to ASEAN. But if today we say if this framework is going to contribute to the development of ASEAN members, uh, I believe that we'll be happy to know more about it. Because as we have seen how COVID-19 uh, and its measures has badly hit ASEAN economy. So if this US-led economic framework could help them to restore their economy, uh, I think it's, uh, it's very likely that ASEAN consider being part of it. Mm. Uh, however, there's mm-hmm. one thing we need to be cautious about, um, uh, about whether the US can be truly committed to this new economic framework. Because we've seen in the past, you know, how the M- Obama administration yes. came up with this Trans-Pacific Partnership, yes. TPP. Yes. But later, under Trump, they decided to actually withdraw from it. So I can only say, um, ASEAN members, they need to consider not only what the U.S. can offer, but whether the 
U.S. is able to keep its commitment. Mm, a lack of continuity uh, indeed seems to be a problem on the part of Washington, especially if we consider its domestic politics. So, oh, by the way, how would you describe this relationship between Indo-Pacific Economic Framework and RCEP, which we know have officially has officially come into force in January? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, one of the differences is, uh, I think it's Indo, uh, Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, um, the high labor standards, environmental standards will maybe uh, make ASEAN countries to actually think twice to participate because uh, that standards are based on Western standards. Yeah, and this is not something that developing countries can actually adhere to. But on the other hand, I think RCEP, uh, especially Malaysia, uh, we are we are considered one of the biggest beneficiaries from RCEP, um, and uh, it's more flexible in the sense in terms of its labor practices uh, and regulations. Mm. So, Dr. Lee, we still have about 90 seconds before we need to wrap up our mm-hmm. interview with you tonight. So, how should yes. China respond to growing U.S. effort to increase the U.S. engagement with Southeast Asia? I think actually China has a strong presence in this region. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's the largest trading partner for ASEAN, and there are many ongoing VR projects in the region. For example, in Malaysia, we have uh, East Coast Railway. Uh, where uh, China has, um, um, you know, um, borrowed money from Malaysia to construct our railway. Um, therefore, in my opinion, ASEAN members may be keener to actually maintain the long-established relationship with China. Uh, so what I think that China can do is to deepen the existing cooperation with these countries and also extend cooperation in new areas. Mm. For example, last year, Malaysia concluded new areas of cooperation with China, for example, in the field of digital economy, mm-hmm. cybersecurity, yes. vaccine research, yeah, and many others, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think one of the new areas that caught my attention is cultural diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this is a new area which uh, ASEAN members and China can work together. Because through cultural diplomacy, ASEAN and China could actually foster mutual understanding and respect for each other. And mm-hmm. we surely build a stronger and more lasting relationship between them. Mm, especially against the backdrop that there is a lot of historical and a cultural or people-to-people link between China and ASEAN. Cultural diplomacy really was... I'm very sure it will work. But thank you very much for, for your analysis. That was Dr. Li Pei Mei. Assistant Professor of Political Science with the International Islamic University, Malaysia. You are listening to World Today. Stay with us. Finnish President Sally Ninisto and Prime Minister Sana Marin said on Thursday that Finland should apply to join NATO without delay. The announcement is the strongest sign so far that Finland will make a formal application to join the security alliance. On Wednesday, in the meantime, the UK agreed on new security deals with Sweden and Finland, pledging to support both countries' armed forces if they come under attack. Now, my colleague Liu Kun earlier had a talk with Dr. Joe Bull, senior fellow with the Center for International Security, and a strategy, Tsinghua University. Let's take a listen. 
Thank you, Zhou Bo, for talking to me today. Now, uh, first up, uh, how significant do you think these security deals between the UK and the two Scandinavian countries are? I mean, UK is not an EU member right now, but it remains to be a NATO member. Well, I don't think the assurance is very significant in that. I think this is the maximum that Boris Johnson can actually provide uh, to both Sweden and Finland as a kind of symbolic support. Because if we look at the military strength of Britain, the question is, how strong is it? During the British aircraft carrier, Elizabeth's visit to South China Sea, actually what on board the aircraft carriers are Americans' F-35, along mm. with a Dutch frigate and and U.S. destroyer. So today, if you compare all the surface ships of uh, uh, British Royal Navy, which was uh, next to none once upon a time, it cannot even be compared with one of the three fleets of the PA Navy. So I suppose basically he wants to compete with uh, uh, Germany and mm. France. Uh, to uh, European countries in uh, showing this kind of support. Mm. Uh, now, a Swedish Prime Minister, Magdalena Andersson, said uh, this on Wednesday at a press conference regarding what, uh, Sweden's possible application to join NATO. And here I quote, uh, she said, are we safer with this declaration? Yes, of course. This means something. I mean, do you agree with her? Does increased security tension on the Scandinavian island make the island safer or not? I don't uh, totally agree with her uh, because uh, this is not a question uh, of of course. Why? Because, uh, first of all, we don't know what uh, Russia is going to do about it because Russia has clearly warned that uh, should these two countries join NATO, it, it will change the non-nuclear status of the Baltic Sea. Therefore, how Russia might respond. The, the second thing is, uh, these two countries might feel safer uh, being uh, NATO members, but the whole European continent will become actually less secure because that, again, would anger Russia, and we don't know the consequences. And particularly because the Russian armed forces, unlike during the Cold War, when it was the conventional forces was even stronger than that of NATO, Russia today has actually very much declined in its conventional force. Therefore, it becomes more reliant in possible use of nuclear weapons. So it is more than once that the Russian leaders have threatened uh, with possible use of nuclear weapons, including raising the combat readiness of the nuclear weapons. So uh, the question is, because Russia doesn't have uh, many tools uh, in the toolkit, but the most obvious tool is nuclear weapons. So mm -hmm. I believe uh, the Russians will simply think more about uh, how they might use nuclear weapons. And this is the biggest worry currently over casting the European continent. Mm, that is certainly very worrisome. Uh, some analysts are saying that UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson these days is among the most hawkish leaders in Europe uh, over Russia. What do you think? What do you think are Britain's appeals in the ongoing Ukraine crisis? Well, I think partly because uh, Britain is a bit far away, 
And uh, the fact is, nowadays, uh, not only British politicians, but also many European leaders are just vying with each other in uh, making this kind of uh, hawkish and rhetorical remarks. But uh, nowadays, uh, they actually have started to fear that this kind of uh, rhetorical competition actually would uh, exasperate the situation because of how serious they would be taken by Russia as a genuine threat or only as rhetorical remarks is a big question. Mm. Uh, then uh, you previously mentioned, you know, uh, UK might want to compete with uh, France and Germany, you know, in showing this kind of support to Northern Europe. Uh, so how do you think uh, such stronger UK Scandinavian security ties will be viewed by France and Germany, who are the two de facto leaders of the European Union? Well, I think uh, they would not care so much about what uh, Britain's uh, response might be, because uh, whatever it will be, at least it cannot dwarf uh, the efforts of, uh, of Germany, uh, according to German Chancellor, uh, who, uh, according to German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, he actually made an unprecedented announcement of setting up 100 billion US euros as a special fund for the German armed forces, and he has also pledged to spend 2% GDP on defense from this year onwards. So this is a sea change. This is totally unprecedented. Uh, this is such a U-turn that actually German magazine asked me to write uh, an mm. opinion uh, for, 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 for them, uh, asking a Chinese like me whether this is a good thing or not. And I just describe it as a turning point, but in the wrong direction. Because turning mm. point, what are they talking about? Why? Because, because Germany used to be very hesitant in their military ambition, and all of a sudden they made such a U-turn. So what does that mean yeah, for, for, for Germany? Because German, Germany traditionally, after the Second World War, is a pacifist country, and this might change the image of Germany. And Germany had some bad memory upon other people because of its history during the Second World War, you see, Putin's very reason or excuse, whatever you call it, is mm. just denazification. And which country would uh, be most associated with this word, uh, nazification? Mm. Well, thank you for sharing your uh, insights in that uh, opinion piece that you wrote for the German magazine here. Now, also, with Finland and Sweden inching closer to join NATO, uh, how, how do you think the security architecture in Northern Europe has been changing, evolving? So it's not only about Northern Europe, but actually it's about the whole Europe. Basically, I believe the world has entered into one world of two Cold Wars. The one uh, in our region, in Asia-Pacific, of course, is uh, focused on uh, uh, what Biden described as extreme competition with China. Uh, uh, the only thing he cared about is that such competition would not spill, uh, spill over into a war. Then, in European continent, we can imagine this war probably will, uh, uh, will become a protracted war because uh, the European allies or the NATO members definitely would provide all sorts of uh, support to Ukraine, including endless arms, to hopefully bog down and then exhaust Russia 
like what they did during the war in Afghanistan. Yeah, so it is a, this kind of a help that uh, protracted that eventually broke down and exhausted the Soviet troops in 1980s in Afghanistan. So in Ukraine, we are seeing the re-emergence of an Afghan scenario. So this war will become protracted, but after this war, I don't know how long it will last, definitely mm -hmm. will be another Cold War, yeah, with Russia on one side uh, and then uh, the NATO on the other side. So without an arrangement that is, that is agreeable to both NATO and Russia, the security and the peace uh, in the European continent uh, are never possible at all. Because mm. like in the past, the security of Europe today, again, has to be arranged or be agreed between NATO and Russia. Uh, also, one final question, because uh, previously we saw South Korea's National Intelligence Agency announced that it has joined NATO's Cyber Defense Group. Now, uh, with UK upping its security game with Northern Europe and South Korea, you know, coming under the umbrella of NATO, uh, are we seeing a reinforcement of U.S.-led security camp or countries just resorting to whatever available security arrangements in a very chaotic time? Well, I think definitely the United States would like to hand up with all its allies to, uh, against China in the Asia-Pacific. But the question is whether it is really uh, uh, capable of doing this or not. Uh, mentioning in, uh, the South Korea's uh, uh, joining NATO in a small area does not mean that uh, uh, South Korea has actually joined the NATO. Because Indeed. NATO uh, basically is within uh, the uh, Europe and uh, it has, of course, uh, uh, the different partners, uh, even in this region, that is for sure. For example, with Mongolia, with Pakistan, with Japan, or with Korea. But it is uh, uh, specialized in certain areas. They are more described as a partner. So I have no doubt about uh, the, the intention of the United States, but I really have some doubt about uh, uh, its capability in hanging up with its allies against China. Because if we look at the... Uh, America's Indo-Pacific strategy, I would conclude that it has many purposes, very few tools, and very few supporters. Why? Because most of the countries, by and large, are friendly with China, and China is the largest trading partner of all of them. So how can these countries sacrifice the huge and important bilateral relationships for the gain of the United States? Do you see this kind of uh, countries teaming up with each other in security becoming more frequent and more random uh, before a new security landscape is becoming clear? Yeah, I think this is a, uh, unfortunate situation will drag on for a while. Uh, the thing the is right now neither Russia nor uh, NATO can actually back down and they are in a stalemate. So you see for Putin, he has to win a victory well, whatever victory means, that is another question, right? So mm -hmm. basically he has lost in, in a kind of all-out war against Ukraine because previously he was uh, fighting at the forefront. But right now, so he was only focused in Donbass. Uh, presumably he would want to secure his gain in Donbass. That presumably would include uh, Ukraine's formal exception of Crimea being part of Russia, uh, recognition of the two so-called republics and the pledge of uh, Ukraine never joining NATO. 
but the challenge for, for him is that uh, Russian troops, I believe, eventually could occupy Donbas. But whether Russian troops could actually garrison Donbas, that is a big question because of the endless support by NATO to mm. Ukraine. In-depth analysis, valuable insights, expert views, presented by an award-winning team. Today, keeping you well-informed, up-to-date, and ahead of the news. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Sri Lankan President Gotabaya Rajapaksa says the country is facing the worst crisis in its history amid an economic emergency which has sparked a wave of violence. In his first national address since protests began last month, he promised to appoint a new prime minister, give more power to the parliament, and look at scrapping the presidential political system. It comes after an MP was killed in standoff with protesters and homes of other politicians were set on fire. Nine people died and about 300 were injured in the violence across the country. In the meantime, security forces have been ordered by the authorities to shoot lawbreakers on site. My colleague Zhao Ying earlier had a talk with Zoom Ahmad Khan, research fellow with the Center for China and Globalization. President Gotabaya Rajapaksa has promised to appoint a new prime minister after his brother resigned, and he offered to cede some of the presidency's power to parliament. But how are those being received by the Sri Lankans? Do you think these approaches could in any way help resolve the crisis? This is definitely a situation that has escalated exponentially, especially over the past month. So I know that uh, right from end of last year and beginning this year, the government, the Rajapaksa government, was already looking to um, to resolve the economic issues that the country was facing. But in this last month, we saw that protests became violent. And uh, the problem I feel right now is that because the dialogue, because that process of being able to discuss effectively the issues that people were facing on the ground has been delayed for so much that even with the resignation of the prime minister and even with uh, uh, President Rajapaksa saying that let's, he also gave a speech uh, just recently to try and reach out, it seems that the protesters on the ground want to ensure that this this family, uh, this even the president, must resign for things to move forward. So it seems that at this point, President Rajapaksa is willing to uh, to give some concessions, to give some powers to the parliament, to engage the opposition parties as well. But on the ground, at least as far as coverage goes, the sentiment seems to be uh, not in favor of uh, of engaging of engaging him. So let's see. But uh, but I feel it may be uh, the perception on the ground, uh, especially for people who have been protesting and who are still on the streets, is that it's too little, too late. Mm-hmm. But how did it come to this? I mean, what has led to this unprecedented economic crisis in the country, and how did that spiral into the political crisis that we're seeing today? Well, uh, you know, Sri Lanka is a country that has been through a lot um, and has been for for South Asia and the South Asian region uh, since obviously they overcame a very unfortunate civil war very bravely. Um, they came forward as an emerging, dynamic and successful economy. But let's now go back towards 2019 when the predictions about the Sri Lankan economy were that they're running a double deficit. So these issues that the economy was facing are being felt for years even prior to the pandemic. 
And today, when people talk about, um, let's, let's look at both sides, those that are, that are in government still and those that are opposing them. Well, those that are in government say that it is the pandemic. It is uh, COVID-19. Uh, Sri Lanka's economy was heavily dependent on, uh, on tourism and also on uh, remittances, on foreign exchange. And that has been drastically affected. And then obviously we have the recent conflict in Ukraine because of which fuel prices have escalated. So with fuel prices, there were energy shortages and inflation of 30% in the country, which means people are not able to afford basic necessities. Now the opposition, so these are the, the, uh, the inflation is obviously a fact. Uh, and the causes, uh, according to the Rajapaksa government, are that it's because of the pandemic. But the opposition says, well, it was mismanaged. And uh, they say that there were populist taxes uh, given at a wrong time. And then even, for instance, banning the import of chemical fertilizers hit the agriculture economy in a country where basic food shortages are rampant. This, this, this led to escalate this sense of um, you know, uh, uh, I would say frustration among people. And then, um, obviously, uh, people are losing their jobs and, um, and the economy is overall just in bad shape. So feeling that they were not being heard probably is what led to this. Okay, so what do you think will happen next? Um, because we know the protesters now, they are demanding the president to resign. So will yeah. that solve all the problems? Not at all. Uh, I, I mean, I think... You know, in any country, when we think about overthrowing one uh, one party, um, it's as if, you know, just this, this is the only problem and that the alternative is the solution. But it is not in any country. We've seen so many. I mean, we've seen those Arab Springs. We've seen different governments, even in Pakistan, for instance. You know, we have a new government, but there are new sets of problems that need to be addressed. So currently, I mean, it seems that the most, uh, uh, the most, a highly possible candidate uh, to uh, is Mr. Vikramji, uh, uh, Ranil Vikram, Vikram Singh, sorry, and uh, and the uh, the people opposing the the opposition right now, the protesters, do not 100% support him either. From my point of view, the real solution would be to not just think that getting rid. I mean, when I hear some of the protesters being interviewed on the streets, they say, "Well, now we want to go all the way." And we saw how violent these protests became, you know, houses being burned down. This is tragic for everyone in the country. There needs to be dialogue. If, even if those people who are asking for the president to resign must recognize that the solution is not just a resignation, but actual consensus building on the national level, which should be inclusive. Yes, well, the Sri Lankan government has been negotiating with the IMF yeah. on a debt relief package and has requested help from China and India. So how do you look yeah. at these efforts and, and what do you think the international community could do to help the country get through this crisis? Okay, so these conversations are happening for a while. Uh, both China and India, I mean, two countries that uh, Sri Lanka has uh, has deep connections with, I mean, um, in terms of economy, in terms of culture, these are two important countries for Sri Lanka, of course. And they have committed. I mean, China has pledged to $2.5 billion. Even recently, the Chinese ambassador said that they will help with the talks with the IMF. India also at the same time, they're, they're sending relief. Uh, instability in Sri Lanka, is it, it affects everyone. I mean, it's, it, it affects the Sri Lankan people, but it also affects the region at large. 
And to be able to help Sri Lanka is a priority for countries uh, that have close links, close relations with the country for various other reasons as well. So I think um, one fact is, however, that overall, globally, uh, the global economy is suffering. Uh, there are many countries that are asking for relief packages from the IMF. They need immediate help. But for now, it seems that Sri Lanka is the country in the most dire need. Yes, uh, but many have been warning that this is this is about more than the mismanagement of an individual country because many low yeah. and middle income countries they are struggling with a three pronged crisis: I, uh, the pandemic, the rising costs of the debt, and the increase in food and fuel prices. So, do you think this will lead to a bigger crisis among the emerging markets? These are definitely interlinked. Now, I will give my own country's example right now because Pakistan has also gone through all of this. Of course, for us, inflation was 13%, and for Sri Lanka, it's 30%. The economic situation doesn't seem to be as as pressing, and people are still able to buy basic necessities. But at the same time, a solution was a, a power transfer. I mean, there was a no-confidence motion. There was a peaceful way to do it. And this is the way that any country should be able to approach this issue. So I think definitely it is a global concern globally, especially in uh, relatively less developed countries, emerging economies, low and middle income countries. Those issues become much more escalated than when people are not able to afford basic necessities of life. They're not able to take care of the ones they love. They're losing their jobs. They're losing a sense of hope. Then they're easily polarized and they're easy to then it's much easier much more likely for any uh, political difference to become uh, to escalate into conflict and that is what has happened in sri lanka i hope that uh, this is a trend that countries are wary of i think governments who must be very sensitive at this time especially in these countries that are facing economic issues to be very sensitive of what is it that the people are experiencing and to try their best to not only solve those problems but also let the people know that they're being heard that was zoom amanda khan was the center for china and globalization talking to my colleague zhao ying earlier you are listening to world today we'll be back Inflation of U.S. consumer prices slowed slightly in April, but remains a huge concern. The annual pace of inflation was 8.3 percent last month, less than the 8.5 percent reading a month earlier, but more than expected. U.S. President Joe Biden says price increases remain unacceptably high, describing bringing down U.S. inflation as his top domestic policy priority. In order to tame inflation, the U.S. Fed raised the interest rate last week by half a percentage point, the biggest hike in more than two decades. So my colleague Zhao Yang earlier had a talk with Andy Mock, senior fellow with the Center for China and Globalization. So Andy, first we've seen the U.S. consumer price inflation increase 8.3 percent last month. Could you please break down all of these figures and what are the main reasons of it? And is the worst of it over? Well, let me start with、uh, the last part of your question, Zhao Yang. Is the worst over? And while some observers may see this as a slightly Uh, optimistic result in that inflation in April was down slightly, but the more important part to focus on is that it came in higher than expected. 
And I think this is really the important point to emphasize here, because the danger with inflation, inflationary spirals, is that people expect inflation to get higher, and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So there was a lot of talk uh, in the market, in the equity markets, with an expectation that uh, the number would be lower, and in fact, it came in higher. So what this means is that uh, people may, uh, investors, businesses, individuals, may now uh, increase their expectations for inflation. And again, these expectations play a crucial role uh, in how inflation might actually play out. So I think this is uh, not a very positive sign. So now to answer your question, where did this come from? I think that this really is an instance of the cure being worse than the disease in that the kindling or what started this inflationary fire was the response of the uh, U.S. to the COVID outbreak and these this uh, unprecedented uh, stimulus uh, that was distributed created a lot of cash in the U.S. economy, which of course created a lot of demand. And it was not only, uh, I think, this policy decision, but also bad luck as well. So it's this conjunction of uh, perhaps we could call it bad choices and bad luck that have led us to where we are today. And certainly there's more to this uh, that we can explore if you would like. And I saw one statistic shows that uh, up to 80% of Americans believe the U.S. is either in a recession or going into a recession. So does the Fed have to send the economy into a recession to essentially control the inflation, or is there no other alternative? Well, so this is the other very important piece of this. And again, I mean, this is a very, very complex subject with uh, – several key moving parts, each of which are very complex on their own. So you mentioned the Federal Reserve. The other aspect to this, too, is that there is a growing belief that the Federal Reserve uh, really was uh, too slow to react. So we roll the clock back, uh, you know, a year or so. Uh, there was a lot of talk from the Fed at the time, and including the, the Biden administration, that inflation was transitory. Therefore, nothing needed to be done. And the conventional wisdom amongst economic, uh, economists is that if central banks do not act quickly to uh, reduce inflationary expectations, that makes the problem even worse when they do actually have to deal with it. And I think this is what we're seeing uh, with a half-point uh, increase. Uh, we may even see... Uh, three-quarter point increases or more as the Federal Reserve now is playing catch-up. And, of course, the problem here, as you touched on, is can the Federal Reserve, can the U.S. government uh, modulate inflation without sparking a recession? And I think the view is that that is maybe an increasingly difficult thing to do. Mm. And how big is it an issue for Joe Biden as he goes into the midterm elections? Well, I think the political timing is very, very bad. Of course, uh, this November we will have uh, the congressional midterm elections in the U.S., and there's a lot at stake here. The Democrats could uh, be in the minority in the House. Uh, they may lose uh, the incredibly narrow uh, control they have of the Senate. Of course, it's uh, 
evenly divided, but with Vice President Harris able to cast the deciding vote uh, nominally, uh, the Democrats are in charge. And if they lose and hear the uh, the economy, as I think Bill Clinton very famously said, it's the economy, stupid, that with high inflation, with a deteriorating economic outlook, and this is very important, increasing shortages, for instance, things like uh, baby formula, other things. It's not only a pricing issue, but as Americans really start to see, if it comes to this, uh, empty store shelves, this could be politically disastrous for the Biden administration, because if they do lose control of both Senate and uh, the House, given how polarized uh, the United States is and how anti-Biden uh, some of the Republicans are. We could see really all kinds of uh, investigations, all kinds of uh, actions. That Welcome back, and uh, that's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for today, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, we've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. <clears throat> We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again. And uh, if you'd like to have access to this program, uh, just go to our website at uh, Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to uh, read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the music of uh, jazz saxophonist uh, Johnny Griffin and the Johnny Griffin Sextet. Uh, this is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
Mm-hmm. <laughs> 